and welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our special guest author is George Weigel. Joining us from our studios in Washington, D.C., his latest book is To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. It's published by Basic Books and available naturally through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, All Things Catholic. Thank you very much, George Weigel, for joining us from Washington, D.C. to talk about your book. Nice to be with you again, Doug. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to sanctify the world, the vital legacy of Vatican II. And why do you emphasize vital? Because, Doug, there is so much confusion over the Second Vatican Council, why it was called, what it actually taught, how it's been implemented, that I thought it was important to lift up the fact that the living parts of the world church today are those that have embraced the council as authoritatively interpreted by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, which is in fact the third part of the book. But in the first two parts of the book, I explain why the council was necessary mm -hmm. and what it actually taught, two topics on which there is considerable confusion misinformation and disinformation, I'm afraid. You make the point that some contemporary Catholic voices no longer limited to the disaffected elderly, but now including deeply committed young Catholics claim that the council was a fatal concession to the modern world. On the other side, you've got the German-speaking Catholic world who seems to think the spirit of Vatican II was an invitation to reinvent Catholicism as another liberal Protestant outgrowth. So that's the competing views we have right now? Well, those are two of the wrong-headed competing views we have right now. I, I find, as I go around college campuses, seminaries, etc., that that younger Catholics simply don't understand, because they've never been taught, frankly, the, the modern history of the church. Mm -hmm. And unless you understand the history of the church in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, you're simply not going to grasp why the Second Vatican Council was necessary. Right. Uh, the Council was necessary because the Church was facing a civilizational crisis. The Western world had just about destroyed itself twice inside of three decades, in the First and Second World Wars. That catastrophe was the result of a world becoming, as John Henry Newman predicted in 1870, 1873, simply irreligious. The church had to find a way to preach the gospel, to get biblical religion back into the bloodstream of Western civilization, and that was why the Second Vatican Council was called by Pope John XXIII to devise new ways to express ancient truths mm -hmm. in a way that a deeply confused and irreligious modern world could hear and engage. Yeah, I thought one of the things very interesting when you go through the, the history not only of the church but also the modern age in the sense of the disillusionment and, and you talk about the 30 years war effectively and thinking about from World War I to the end of uh, World War II. And, and that irreligious aspect and the fact that the church in the past played a role as part of Christendom. But now that Christendom was gone, what was its role today, right? Right. Yeah, that's exactly the question that was posed, uh, frankly, by a young German theologian named Joseph Ratzinger in 1958. 
uh, when he wrote a, a really quite incendiary article that said Europe used to be populated by converted pagans, pagans who had become Christians through the evangelical work of the church. The situation we face today in 1958, Ratzinger wrote, is the exact opposite. We have nominal Christians who are in fact pagans, and the church is not the culture-forming, culture-shaping, culture-directing institution it should be. We need to get back into the game, and that requires rethinking how the church evangelizes in a late modern cultural context. Now, of course, obviously, early on, John Twenty-Third died, but you said the bitterness displayed in many post-Vatican II contentions would have sanded John Twenty-Third, but those contentions would not have altogether surprised him. No, they wouldn't have surprised him because John Twenty-Third was a historian by academic training. His specialty was the implementation of the Council of Trent in the Archdiocese of Milan in Italy by St. Charles Borromeo in the 16th century. And because he was a historian, John XXIII understood that every ecumenical council in history, all previous 20 of them, had begun in controversy, had been conducted in controversy, and had been followed by controversy. When he summoned the Second Vatican Council, he hoped that it would be a new Pentecostal experience for the Church, a new experience of the Holy Spirit, out of which would come a new sense of evangelical energy. John XXIII wanted Vatican II to be the engine of what John Paul II would later call the new evangelization. But he understood, as a competent historian, that it was going to take some time for all of that to shake out after an ecumenical council, because that that's what had happened uh, in the previous 20 ecumenical councils, and we are still in the shaking out period today. So in, in looking at uh, reimagining Vatican II, what do you mean reimagining it? I mean, first of all, understanding John XXIII's original intention for the Council, which was not to reinvent the Catholic Church, it was to re-energize it for mission. Secondly, I mean understanding precisely what the Council taught, most crucially in its two central documents, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, How Does God Speak to Us?, and the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, how do we respond to that divine invitation to communion through the church in its many forms? Most Catholics today, I'm afraid, have no idea what was taught in either of those seminal documents of Vatican II, so it's important to understand that. And then thirdly, I try to show in the book, in terms of reimagining the Council, how it was given its authoritative interpretation by two men of the Council, mm -hmm. Karol Wojtyla of Krakow, later John Paul II, and Joseph Ratzinger of Bavaria, later Pope Benedict XVI. So why was the Council necessary? What did it actually teach? How are we to understand that teaching? Mm -hmm. 
through the work of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. It's interesting because you, you talk about the keys and you, you mentioned John Paul II having a key and Benedict having a key, but that, that there were no master keys at the end of Vatican II. Why not? This is, this is the, one of the real differences of, of Vatican II. It's often said that Vatican II was not a doctrinal council, but a pastoral council. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of serious theological and doctrinal teaching in the Second Vatican Council. What was different about Vatican II is that unlike every other previous council, it did not provide itself the keys to its authentic interpretation. Let me explain. If you want to know what the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., was about, you read the creed it wrote, which we recite every Sunday. If you want to know what the two great Christological councils of the early 5th century, Chalcedon and Ephesus, were about, you read their dogmatic definitions. Mary is Theotokos, mother of God or God-bearer. There are two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. If you want to know what other councils meant, you read, the, read their condemnation of heresies, you read the canons they wrote into the law of the church. Council of Trent did a lot of that in the 16th century and also commissioned a catechism which was another key to understanding the Council of Trent. Vatican II did none of that. No creed, no definitions, no condemnations, no canons, and no catechism. So we had a kind of 20-year free-for-all about what was all of this about? What did all of this mean? And then I think the critical moment came in 1985 when John Paul II summoned a special meeting of the Synod of Bishops to look at the Council 20 years after its conclusion, a meeting of the Synod that was dominated by the thought of then Cardinal Ratzinger, and that Synod of Bishops, affirming the Council as a work of the Holy Spirit, gave us a key to Vatican II by saying that the Church is a communion of disciples in mission. Mm -hmm. Church begins with friendship with Jesus Christ. That inserts us into the body of his friends, best described as a communion. And that communion exists to bring Christ to the world. That's the message of Vatican II boiled down into one sentence. The church is a communion mm -hmm. of disciples in mission. Right, well, you'd say the renewal of the Catholic mind had been refined the intellectual tools needed to offer the world a new Christian and indeed Christocentric humanism in response to the defective ideas of the human person that had wrought such lethal damage. You go on to say, by the recentering of the Catholic theology and apologetics on Christ as the icon of true humanism, the Catholic proposal remained to be embodied communally, however. And that would require a resolution to the other great question, the question about the church. Yeah, Doug, I think um, at the time of the Council, uh, the wiser, more insightful spirits in the Church understood that <clears throat> the two crucial questions facing humanity at the end of the second millennium were the question, what is the human person? Mm -hmm. 
Are we simply little twitching bundles of desires? Is there a higher aspiration to which we should commit ourselves? Are we spiritual beings? If so, how do we know any of that? And the second question was, what is authentic human community? Mm -hmm. uh, traditional communities had broken down throughout the modern world. Family was in crisis. Both Nazis and communists had tried to create new forms of human community that proved unspeakably lethal and brutal. So those two questions had to be addressed, and the council did address them. It said, to sum up very briefly, if you want to know the truth about the human person, you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. because Christ reveals not only the face of the Father of mercies, but the truth about us. In his life, death, and resurrection, we see the truth about righteous living, and we see the truth about humanity's noble destiny and our individual destinies. Mm -hmm. So look to Christ to understand what it means to be a human being fully alive. Right. You say, therefore, then the council, I'm sorry. Look to the church. Right. Look to the church as a right. template of authentic human community. Right. As you say, therefore, the council, like the church itself, must be radically Christ-centered. You go on later in the book to say, in Pope John's vision of Vatican II, the council was to radicalize the faith, not weaken it by making concessions to modern intellectual sens sensibilities and chivalrous. That radicalization, in turn, would invigorate the church for mission, thus Dei Verbum. Yeah, thus the dogmatic consti uh, constitution on, on, on divine revelation. Mm -hmm. A lot of the modern world perceived us as living in a kind of claustrophobic house, a, a world without windows or doors or skylights, a world of silence. And that silence becomes stifling, and in, the, in that silence, people can turn against each other. As one of the great fathers of the Second Vatican Council, Father Henri de Lubac, put it in the 1940s, it's not true that human beings can't organize the world without God. They can. But without God, they can only organize the world against each other mm -hmm. as a kind of circular firing squad. What the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation robustly affirmed is that we don't live in a world of silence, mm -hmm. that God speaks into that world, has spoken into it, first through the people of Israel, later in the person of the incarnate word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't live in a world without windows, doors, or skylights. We live in a world open to a greater reality, and that gives shape and texture to our lives here and now. You say a church dedicated to the conversion of modernity inevitably opens itself up to cultural pressures <laughs> of modernity, including modernity's inbred skepticism about institutional authority. In the post-conciliar years, submission to those pressures uh, pressures, either conscious or unwitting, gave rise to what might be thought of as liquid Catholicism, a Catholicism that rushes ahead of God in search of secular relevance. So liquid Catholicism, is that what we're going through now? It's certainly what the church in Germany is going through right mm -hmm. now, because the church in Germany has become a kind of woke discussion group 
that is a church of the zeitgeist, a church of the spirit of the age, a church without any real tether to the reality of God's revelation as to what makes for human happiness, human beatitude, human flourishing. That's what I mean by liquid Catholicism. Mm. No identity, no boundaries, a church of the spirit of the times. Right. And it, that is disastrous for the future. Right, as you say, very unhealthy. Uh, chapter 12, to worship the one worthy of worship. Now here's something we, the liturgy wars have been riven the Catholic Church since Second Vatican Council, obscured the intent and in teaching of the Council's constitution on the sacred liturgy. Why so much confusion in your mind about the liturgy? Well, I think the liturgical reform uh, instituted after the Council was rushed, was not thought through as well as it might be, might have been. Uh, I think in recent years we've seen a very happy and salutary re-sacralizing of the liturgy, which was what Pope Benedict XVI intended by making the so-called extraordinary form of the Roman Rite more widely available. That process has unfortunately been halted, at least for the moment, by the um, motu proprio of Pope Francis, Traditionis Custodes, which has limited the use of the extraordinary mm -hmm. form. I think that was a serious mistake. Uh, it was pastorally insensitive, theologically incoherent, and it's made the church a much crankier and unhappy place. So I really don't understand what was uh, the intention of that act. In most of the parts of the world church with which I'm familiar, Benedict's reform of the reform was having the desired effect. Mm -hmm. Clown masses were over, right. goofiness liturgically was over, younger priests were celebrating mass in a more dignified way. The new English translations we have had since 2014, I think, have immensely improved the quality of worship. So things were moving in a better direction, and now we've hit this speed bump, which I hope will not be extended too far into the future. You say in the text of that document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, none of this reimagining the liturgy implied a negation of the past, as you're indicating. Yeah, that's right. I mean, worship is instinctive to human nature. Human beings are going to worship something. Question is whether the object of worship is a worthy one. Uh, if it isn't, you get into all sorts of trouble. Think of the German National Socialist worship of race, state, etc. Uh, the worship of the Catholic Church had evolved organically over centuries. Mm -hmm. And the Council wanted to foster that further organic development according to the lights of a liturgical movement that had began, begun in the church in the 19th century, uh, engaged the hearts and minds of, of men like young Joseph Ratzinger in, mm -hmm. in Germany in the 1950s. Uh, what happened immediately after the council, unfortunately, was not organic development, but a kind of radical reconfiguration of not only the rite of the Mass, mm -hmm. uh, but of the liturgical calendar, 
uh, and other aspects of Catholic worship, and it was just all done too quickly. Right. You cannot do organic development according to um, a set time schedule. Right. So um, that was, I think, a mistake that should be conceded. And yet, as I say, my view is that over the past 20 years, things have been moving back in the right direction with a re-sacralizing of the liturgy. And that is what mm -hmm. animates the living parts of the world church today. Right. Well, you mentioned, and, and obviously Vatican II taking, from the time it was announced, about five years, I guess, or so, uh, that in the second half of the documents that come out, as opposed to some of the big ones that we talked about earlier, it's interesting. You talk about it, them being more of a snapshot of the modern world in 1965 than an insightful analysis of where modernity was heading. You go on to say that Gaudi Metzpez welcomed the emergence of women in new and social roles, but without anticipating the harder edge forms of feminism that would regard abortion on demand as an essential component of women's emancipation and empowerment, nor did it anticipate the LGBTQ movement. Uh, Doug, there was a big argument at the council over what this unique document called the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World should do. And the compromise that was reached was that the first half of the document would teach some fundamental Catholic truths about the nature of the human person, human community, culture, society, politics, economics. And then the second half would be uh, devoted to particular problems. Question of marriage in the family, question of economic life, question of international political life, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. The problem with doing that in a conciliar document is that history just moves too fast. So the second half of the Pastoral Constitution on the Church mm -hmm. in the Modern World mm -hmm. kind of freeze frames the world in 1965, you know, more or less insightfully, but it was overrun by the history of the next 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. So what is of enduring value in, in Gaudium et Spes, to give that pastoral constitution its Latin title, is the first half, which really has some very important things to say uh, in it, uh, including, by the way, a robust condemnation mm -hmm. of uh, communism. Right. and of the communist assault on religion and, by extension, all secular assaults on religion. An important theme throughout the Western world today when religious freedom is often in jeopardy. Right. What, what, was, what is Jacques Maritain's lament? <laughs> Jacques Maritain was one of the most distinguished Catholic philosophers of the 20th century. Uh, in many respects, his philosophical work on Christian humanism, Christian personalism, the Catholic case for democracy, a Catholic understanding of what we mean by human rights, a new relationship between Catholicism and its Jewish parent, all of this was vindicated at Vatican II, to the point where Paul VI, who regarded Jacques Maritain as my teacher, he used to call him il maestro, il mio maestro, my teacher, uh, invited him to attend the closing ceremonies of the council and receive the council's 
letter to uh, people of culture. Uh, a great tribute to, to Jacques Maritain, who had been a controversial figure throughout the mid-20th century. A couple of years after the council, Maritain wrote a book called The Peasant of the Garonne, uh, in which he said, look, uh, the original evangelical intention of John XXIII is being lost. The council was not called to reinvent Catholicism or to surrender to the spirit of the late 60s. This shocked a lot of people, but it uh, seems to me to have been a pretty prescient view of, of one stream of false interpretation uh, of Vatican II. So Jacques Maritain, who had been ahead of the curve in anticipating uh, the council and its teaching, was also ahead of the curve in anticipating some of the problems that are, for example, so manifest in German Catholicism today. Right. He used the term, I guess, kind of kneeling before the world. Also, just just before we yeah. go, in a, in a closing moment here, you, you make this point. It kind of sums up a lot in my mind. Any serious wrestling with the legacy of the Second Vatican Council will, will avoid the fallacy of the idea that what happened after the council happened because of the council. What did you mean? Uh, just, just that. I yeah. mean, it's a simple logical fallacy to uh, assume that everything that happened in the church after Vatican II happened because of Vatican II. A lot of what has happened in the church since Vatican II has to do with the tsunami of cultural junk that mm -hmm. flooded through the Western world in the decades immediately following the Council. I think the Council's documents provide an answer to the renewal of culture. So to blame, for example, what is going on in the church in Germany today on Vatican II is to fundamentally misunderstand the council, which is exactly what the leadership of German Catholicism in the main is doing today. Right. Well, people reading this book will get a better understanding to sanctify the world, the vital legacy of Vatican II. Author George Weigel, thank you so much, George, for spending your time with us. This book is available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com. For all things Catholic, and this is a Catholic book, check it out. Lots of great information. Thank you so much, George Weigel, from our D.C. studios. And thank you all for joining us here on another edition of Bookmark.